Hi, the Black Talk Media Project would like to invite you to become a member of the BTR Community subscription-based social media platform. BTR Community is a platform that was set up for the listening audience of Black Talk Radio Network, the number one independent black radio network online. For just $24 per year, your subscription gives you access to an interactive space to share information with like-minded people with your privacy guaranteed. Your subscription will go a long way to help us maintain and improve our current media platforms. It will also help provide a budget so that we can begin the task of establishing localized media centers and radio stations across the United States. The best way to show your support and appreciation for what we do here at Black Talk Radio is to subscribe. Help us to help you be informed. Join btrcommunity.com today. Just lift your eyes up, let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times if it's time, rise up, rise up, when death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the feast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing rise up when famine claims millions when justice gives blind eyes to billions when the lord's anger is no longer feared if his protection is gone and your enemies are near if you've seen the seas spill over and the mountains shake break and fall if the moon ever turns blood red and you can't see the sun at all rise up no matter if the prize is high in the skies or deep Peace and welcome to New Revolutionist Radio on the Black Talk Radio Network, a program that seeks to educate, inform, and advocate on the issue of 21st century legalized slavery. Hosted by social activist and spoken word poet Max Parker and Black Talk Media Project founder Scotty Reed. On this program, we discuss recent news on legalized 21st century slavery and human trafficking as it is practiced through the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, along with projects and people who help combat it. Today is the July 4th broadcast of New Abolitionist Radio, the first time in our program's history that the 4th of July has landed on our program. On and near this day in history, on July 2nd, 1917, rioting erupted in East St. Louis, Illinois, as a white mob attacked black residents Nearly 50 people, mostly blacks, and believe, are believed to have died in the violence. Also, on July 2nd, on this day in 1964, U.S. President Lyndon B. Johnson signed into law the historic Civil Rights Act in a nationally televised ceremony at the White House. And, of course, on July 4th, 1776, the Continental Congress passed the resolution saying that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states. <clears throat> With the leading colonialists signing the Declaration of Independence, an abolitionist document declaring America free from slavery under British rule, all done with no intention of freeing the Africans they kept as slaves. It would take another 90 years and a civil war to address that conundrum of hypocrisy. In direct action news, 
we will continue to remind you about a nationwide prison slave labor work strike that is being called for from August 21st through September 9th. If you know someone inside, please tell them what's going on. Also, the Right to Vote campaign needs your help. Uh, it is a nationwide campaign being initiated by people currently confined in the United States. This campaign grew out of the August 21st national prison strike demands, specifically point 10, the voting rights of all confined citizens serving prison sentences, pretrial detainees, and so-called ex-felons must be counted. Representation is demanded. Our abolitionist in profile tonight is Frederick Douglass. In his honor, we will play an audio rendition of his speech, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July, read by James Earl Jones. Our rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad is 50-year-old Jerome Johnson of Baltimore, who was released July 2nd, just two days ago, after spending 30 years in prison for a crime he did not commit. As always, we have little time and a lot of information. So be sure to follow the information we provide on our Facebook page at New Abolitionist Radio so you can see it in real time as we talk about the stories. Also, remember to support our efforts by joining us as a member at community.blacktalkradionetwork.com. You'll find the links for today's program on our abolitionist planning page. If you've got a question or comment, you can always call in at 704-802-5056. You can chat with us and others by logging in at uberconference.com slash Black Talk Radio Network. Once again, I'm Max Parthas. What's happening, Brother Scotty? I'm struggling. I'm struggling over here, Max, uh, trying to uh, get our live stream going. So on this particular 4th of July, we're having problems with our server. I'm kind of wondering, though, Max, if this has something to do with net neutrality. Perhaps the ISP is throttling me. I don't know. Uh, but this is weird, and so I hate it, man, because people, you know, we have a dedicated audience that tunes in, so those who may listen to this later on podcast, my apologies, um, but we are going to record the podcast, and I will try to connect us live during the program. So that's what's going on with me, Max. Ain't doing too good right now. <laughs> I understand, Scotty. Well, I have a couple of videos that I was hoping to be able to play today. One of them is pretty long. It's actually 14 minutes, but it's uh, by an attorney uh, who is on a, a friendly network to us, uh, the, the Advice Show, and she talks about the origins of the police forces across America and what they represent here and now today. And uh, I wouldn't mind putting that as, you know, just listening to what she had to say, let somebody else talk and explain to someone very well, very well versed on the subject, and then maybe we could discuss what they spoke of afterwards. Got to give you some time to work on what you got to work on while the video plays. What do you think about that? Scotty, I put the link into the chat room in case you want to use that. Peace and greetings, family. 
My topic of conversation is the origins of the modern day police department, AKA the slave patrollers. Now we've been watching on the news and we can't get away from the information that we've seen with Black Lives Matter and Police Lives Matter or All Lives Matter. And so recently, a couple of days ago, we saw um, that the prosecutor's office decided to dismiss Freddie Gray's case. Now, as much of a travesty of, of injustice that is, we have to ask the question, how did it get so bad? So you have to go back to the origins of the police department so that we can see what the intent and the purpose of the police department was in the beginning. Now, was it to protect and serve? Was it to, um, to stop criminal activity? The answer to the question is no. Now, when you look at the beginnings and inceptions of the police department, it came out of slavery. The slave patrol was originated by different states, different counties, different municipalities, and the government in order to protect the property rights of the slave, the rich slave owners. Also, you saw that the slave patrols were a mechanism and a tool to be able to control the actual uh, African descendant or the slave population to stop them from rising up and causing insurrection. Now, in 1704, South Carolina instituted its first slave patrol. Now, they used uh, county law and they made it mandatory for the white males to have to be a part of these slave patrols. In essence, they drafted these people into um, slave patrolling. The names we would hear was uh, patrollers, uh, patty rollers, patties. Um, when we think of the police departments, you when you look at their big vans or when they bring people in, you talk about the paddy wagons. All of this stemmed from back in slavery dealing with slave patrollers. Now, when you talk about the function of the slave patrollers, um, what were they? Well, the biggest function was for them to return the escaped slaves um, back. The second thing was to stop uh, revolt or insurrection. But the third was typically to, just to control, intimidate a particular population so that you can keep them in line. And that's exactly what they did. Now, these slave patrols um, did not have a lot of money. So what they did have was whips and they had intimidation. And so their job was to go from plantation to plantation to make sure that there were no slaves walking around idly trying to escape. And each slave who was going from plantation to plantation, um, if they were given permission by their slave owners, they had to have a pass. And so the slave patroller's job was to look for this pass. But many times, even if they had a pass, um, their job was to intimidate uh, and scare these uh, slaves. Now, the slave patrol caught on through different municipalities and different counties. And so what you started seeing was the legalization and the codification of these particular organizations. Hence, we see an actual modern day policing organization that was given money by the local government and the local uh, municipalities. Even Congress passed laws um, dealing with runaway slaves. So when you have these group of white males who are forced, and they were forced to be able to, uh, to patrol the slaves, there was already resentment because they thought blacks were subhuman anyway. But now you're forced to leave your own home, your own property, um, regardless of who you were, unless you were a, a rich slave owner and you had to go out and spend your time patrolling black men and black women. 
And so you, it was set up with a hostile environment. And slave, like I said, slave patrolling started in 1704, and it did not end into emancipation. There's a civil war. During the four years of the Civil War, that first year, you saw the slave patrollers escalate. Why? Because they knew that with the Civil War, there'll be um, uh, more and more of insurrection or uh, uprising of the slaves. So the, the government borrowed from the state militia in order to continue to control the slave population. Now, these slave patrollers, one of the things that they would do was they would come into these houses, the slave houses, randomly. They made sure that, one, they didn't have books. They made sure that they did not have excess items that could be mistaken to uh, view as if they were going to use this to run away with. Um, Basically, they did whatever they wanted to do. And it didn't matter if you was a compliant slave. It didn't matter if you were a non-compliant slave. Most of the slave patrollers would, in fact, in fact, um, beat, whip, um, all kind of just inhumane atrocities on the slaves. You know, one of the things that we know most for is the lynching. And you didn't have to have a real reason why you lynched a slave because the government, the the local municipality, the counties, they made sure that the white man was exonerated. Now, in certain exceptions, if the slave patrollers brutally beat or killed one of the slave uh, owners um, property, then, you know, there was retribution from the slave owners and it depend on who the slave owner was. So you see that you had these searches, these random searches, these um, arbitrarily and capricious searches. Um, so if you look at the modern day policing in the, in um, the culture that we see nowadays, and we're watching it unfold on TV as we go along, you see that, that these police officers, modern day police officers, you know, they have no regard for people's rights. They have no regard for people's lives. And when you look at the origins and the philosophy and the culture and the, the, the sentiments of where modern day police came from, a lot of times these police officers carry that particular um, sentiment um, in their policy and their control and their implementation and the government backs them up and when comparing the modern day police officers to the slave patrols the, the founding fathers of the police um, uh, department what you, what you see is um, you have the stop and frisk law where you know what black people are randomly stopped and frisk you see the racial profiling is extremely prevalent among brown and black people And uh, today I went to court and one of the things that kind of startled me and stunned me that I had to do research on and the prosecutor herself had to go and Google and see what this particular new weapon that the police department has is what you call the automated license plate reader. Yeah, the automated license plate reader. And what that is, it's a device that goes on top of the police car. It goes on top of billboards. It goes on top of signs. And what it does is a camera that works with fast moving objects. And it can record and take in the license plate and automatically allow that information from the license plate to come up to, to capture the person's individual information, whether they have any warrants. And so what you're finding now here in Houston, Texas, is that these officers will be posted up and they will have this automated license plate reader and they will 
in essence, racially profiling certain particular cars. They'll pull them over because they'll have a warrant for a traffic ticket. And then because they have a warrant for a traffic ticket, they'll do what's called a search incident to an arrest, which they legally can do. And then they'll find some type of contraband, uh, something that's illegal or, you know, in case of dirty cops on the street, they'll plant drugs um, just so that they can get a conviction or get an arrest outside of getting a traffic, getting them to go to a, a traffic court dealing with their traffic ticket. So, you know, the modern day police department has so many tools that continues to, to, uh, actually intimidate, threaten black people, uh, creates uh, an atmosphere of big brother or surveillance. They're continuously watching a group of people so that, that they won't rise up or have some type of insurrection, especially in this day day and time because you find in more and more um, people rising up against the injustices of the police department, the injustices of, the, of police brutality. And so now you have these tools and devices and these laws that are enacted so that we can, again, control a particular population of people and create more economics for the property owners. Now, I was in uh, last week, I was in a small county dealing with a case and the county may have had about 10,000 residents. Seventy five percent of those residents were black. Now, the the county Um, The infrastructure of the county, it was terrible. You could tell it was a small town, but the courts and the police department, that infrastructure, you could tell that they put a lot of money in that infrastructure. And then what surprised me the most is when you're driving up, what you see is uh, tanks. I saw they had like three military, uh, I won't call them tanks, they were Humvees. And then when you walked into the police station, the first thing you saw was this wall of past sheriffs and um, from from back into the 1800s. And then what you also saw next to that wall was a quilt in a frame. And in the quilt in the frame, it said police lives matter. Now, you know, I knew immediately that what the sentiment was in that particular town. I knew that immediately that there were slave patrollers in that town. If you look at the history of that town, which, in fact, they did have slave patrollers. But when you look at what's going on now, it's modern day slavery. Uh, one example in that town, there was a man who had um, was charged for possession of a controlled substance. Um, very small amount. And a jury convicted him of 85 years in that particular small town, which was not uncommon for that particular small town. So why am I why am I talking about that? Okay, so we're talking about slave patrols and modern day policing. And so during slave patrols, you're talking about economics and you're talking about the controlling of a particular group of people. Now, I want you to always focus on the money and anything that we see systematically in the systematic um, injustices that we deal with on a daily basis. At the root of everything is economics. And so when you have the government uh, feeding, you know, money into these uh, um, policing uh, municipalities, then you have to follow the money. The more rest they have, you know, more money that that particular county or that particular municipality gets from when someone goes to jail, they have to post a bond and then they have to get a lawyer. And then they have, if they go on probation, they have to pro- pay probationary fees and community supervision fees. They have to pay so much money into this particular criminal justice system. Now, if that's even if they make it out 
of there without going to jail. And then if they go to jail, then you're talking about modern day slavery, modern day slavery, because they use these people in jail here in Texas, Texas Department of Correction. They have private corporations who um, come in and they ask to use the the slave labor or the prison labor in order to to produce or create their products. So here we we have, again, we have the policing department who's being used unknowingly maybe or, you know, or unwittingly knowing that um, they're being used to sustain this economy based on slave labor, modern day slave labor. When you look at the history of slavery and when the slaves were emancipated, what did they do? They created these uh, these codes, these black codes or the Jim Crow laws in order to continue to criminalize or institutionalize these black people so that they can continue with the economic prosperity of the former slave masters. And so if you criminalize them, you put them on a plantation, you put them on a farm, you put them in a prison farm and you force them to work for free. Again, modern day slavery, modern day policing. You look at um, what happened with Freddie Gray just recently and how these police officers were exonerated and they got to walk away. And so we're concerned that there is no justice. But the thing is, you have to ask the question, was the system set up to give us justice in the first place? And the answer is emphatically no. So what do we do about it? We continue to fight. We continue to stand up. I'm doing my job by bringing light to the reality and the truth and the origins of where this came from. And so when we realize that this particular institution was never meant to protect and serve us, it was never meant to give us justice, then we must stand up and find out and fight What is it that we need to do for ourselves in order to have justice? One, you have to get these dirty cops out of our neighborhoods. Let us be able to patrol our neighborhoods. Let us be able to secure our own neighborhoods. Give us the resources so that we may protect and serve our own people and get this particular institution of people out of our neighborhoods who were never set up to protect and serve us in the first place. So I just want to encourage um, black people, minority people, let's continue to do for ourselves because if we are looking to someone else to do for ourselves and expecting justice, then we are suffering and will continue to suffer the consequences of this injustice. Allow us to protect and serve ourselves. Right, Scotty. There you have it. Uh, For those that don't know, that is Sadea Evangelista. She is a federal and state defense attorney. And the clip is courtesy of the Advise Show Media and Brother Phil over there. You there, Max? Yeah, I thought I was just talking. Did you hear me? Um, no, we didn't hear you. We something. Oh, let me repeat it. For, yeah, uh, yeah, we heard you mention who the that, attorney that is was. That is Sister Sadia Evangelista. She is a federal and state defense attorney, and it is a clip from the Advise Show Media and uh, our family over there. Okay, yeah, we we heard that. Um, I was just wondering if we lost you. Something was going on with the board, but never mind. Um, we had some issues uh, getting the live stream up. Sorry for the delay. 
Uh, we are streaming live, so welcome to New Abolitionist Radio Live on Black Talk Radio Network. And before I comment on that clip, let me just say that today is a day where people have are displaying cognitive dissonance on a mass level here in the United States by celebrating the day that's supposed to be celebrating freedom, freedom, okay? And we live in a nation with the world's largest uh, prison slaves. So that's got to be cognitive dissonance. I know with some people is is they're celebrating the so-called founding fathers and you know the whole white nationalist type deal, but I'm talking about the masses of the people because because that's only about half the country, you know, or nearly half the country. The other half that's celebrating, they just doing it just because they've been programmed to celebrate it. So just the cognitive dissonance involved on this day, mass cognitive dissonance. I know mind, body, and spirit coming up after us, they're going to talk about unplugging from the matrix. How, how do you get out the matrix? So this is some matrix type behavior here. And um, so, but I was happy to see social media uh, tweeting a lot about Frederick Douglass's speech, what is the 4th of July, you know, to, to the Negro and his uh, emancipation declaration is a stupendous fraud speech uh, which was actually an unnamed speech but yeah uh, I was glad to see the mass awakening and in getting to the video I kept hearing modern slavery I kept hearing modern slavery I kept hearing modern slavery that's how you program the reality that we are facing in this country into the minds of the listeners and the viewer, viewers as that was a video. We have to keep using the proper language. And, you know, I saw, I want to play a two-minute clip. Well, actually, it's only one minute. Uh, American Jail, all right? That was a film that aired uh, on CNN on Sunday. It's a film by Roger Ross Williams, who went back to his hometown and discovered a lot of his homeboys and girls had been in prison or been in jail or something like that, to that effect. It was uh, on, in the theme of Abra DuVernay's 13th, but I would say it was more, it provided you with more details and useful information, and it did not showcase a bunch of people trying to abolish mass incarceration or reform mass incarceration never even touching upon abolishing slavery save for one of the people that was on there and that was that radio uh, show host the white male he's the only one I recall Max that touched upon it but in 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 Mr. Roger Ross Williams American Jail he highlighted the 13th Amendment I'm going to play that clip but he kept saying, slavery, how is this not slavery? Sounds like slavery. It is slavery. Uh, you know, uh, several times throughout the film, he gets it. And shout out to Mr. Williams if he's listening tonight. We are going to invite, invite you to come on to the program. What's that, Max? Yeah, I definitely did want to talk about that video. And I want to give props because I watched as much as I had available to watch that uh, clip that you gave gave us. So I want to go into depth on it as well. But I didn't want to skip the video that we just played. And, you know, I, I wanted to uh, have an opportunity to talk about that and also the 4th of July, too. 
All right, go ahead, Max, and, and you know I'll come back to American. Yeah, Jail yeah, I definitely want to spend some time on the, the film you were just mentioning because it was powerful as hell. Yeah, and, Max. Uh, well, let me save that for afterwards. Yeah, uh, but Max, let what, me what, let, let me make this yeah. quick point about what she was saying though. So she said, "I'm glad she said how do we solve this problem?" She mentioned uh, aspects of self determination. Uh, relying on self, doing for self. Well, that also includes governing self. Now, I would like to know the name of this county and this town. She's talking about this 75% black, not unlike Ferguson, which was 60% black. And what was the city council makeup? And who is the sheriff? And who is the mayor? And what's the problem? Is there is there a, a low voter turnout? Is there not our sales running for office? I mean, excuse my grammatical error there, but I mean, are we not running for office? How do you how do you be the predominant population in a town like Ferguson or this town? She and you not control the politics. That's self reliance too now. And a lot of people who talk about self reliance don't talk about self governance. Now, you're not going to overthrow nothing, so, you know, not at this time. So you might as well hone uh, your skills in the people activity area that controls all of the other areas that Mr. Neely Fuller Jr. named, and that's politics. And we, you know, politics is local. Um, our guest last week, the sister from Asheville, um, talked about the sheriff's department. We talked about that's the most important position in a county if we're talking about the modern system of slavery. So I, I just wanted to add that. And then what is the makeup of, uh, it don't matter to me because a slaver is a slaver regardless of their skin color. But I watched this Washington, D.C. video of these cops with quite a few black slaver, slave patrollers jumping out on some young black men uh, acting like they about to plant something. I mean, it was like a whole gang of slave catchers. It was may have been seven or eight harassing harassing those young men. Okay, so so um, you know uh, when it comes to slavery, um, it's not along color lines because we some of us, a lot of us, are so much apart of this system and depend on it for a livelihood. And some of us just, just don't have the morality to turn down immoral jobs. Max? Yeah, um, there was the main thing that she was talking about, though, <clears throat> is the core of what we know as today's modern-day police. And that includes all of the branches, like ICE, for instance. Um, so she was showing, with no uncertain terms, how historically they began as slave catchers and also showing us without a doubt that they are still slave catchers. This is what they're doing out there right now. And they're doing it because of this criminalization of people, predominantly people of color, poor and minorities. So uh, she showed all of that, how, and, you know, how it came to be from A to Z. And I admire the sister's ability to really lay it out that way. I'm also appreciative that other people are talking about it in this way. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, there was a time when it was only a few we heard, but now we're hearing it from every quarter. And as we have documented here, Oscar-nominated films are coming out about it. Uh, everybody who can pretty much has had something to say on the matter. Where you don't hear about it normally is among the talking heads 
like on CNN and Fox News and MSNBC, but you'll see it in their publications. It's amazing, but for some reason they never want to talk about modern-day slavery through the justice system on national television, as if talking about that would make the world end, which it possibly could for them. In any case, um, yeah, I want to give a, a props for that. And also, uh, as I mentioned before, there's so many different avenues that are coming out now with this type of of information. One of those is the film Scotty was talking about a little bit earlier. And we've got a clip that you put together, I believe, Scotty, um, of one section where he talks about, actually talks about the 13th Amendment. I watched the whole thing. And personally, I think that he should have kept hammering in that connection throughout the film. But I, he kind of just said it in that one area to give the dramatization and to point at the source. But I think he should have focused more on that connection throughout the film. Nonetheless, he did a great job. And, Scotty, I think that this brother is a listener because there were some things in there that he hit on that you only hear about on New Abolitionist Radio. Like, you ain't never heard this nowhere else before because we usually do our own research on a lot of things, like pointing out that there are only two countries in the world that use cash bail uh, systems like we do, and that's us in the Philippines. So I was like, yeah, this brother is getting it. Whether he's getting it directly he, he mentioned, from us he mentioned or indirectly, Nixon. he's getting it. He mentioned Nixon, and you brought up Nixon quite a few times yep. over the years. The drug war brought that up. But, Max, he did, um, throughout the film that I saw, he mentioned slavery. It sounds like slavery. How is it not slavery? Several yes, times. he said that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, well, I'll go ahead and play the clip. Uh, again, this is a one-minute clip that I took from the film which I was shocked, Max, that CNN even showed it. Netflix, I wasn't so shocked because they're online-based. You know what I'm saying? They have a little bit more autonomy since they're not, um, they're fairly young in terms of mass communications. So I wasn't so much shocked that they would um, give Ava DuVernay a budget to create the 13th. Um, but I was shocked to see it on CNN, but I do want to reiterate your point that while they show this film, if you watch their daily news broadcast and they're talking about police violence, slave catcher patrollers and whatnot, they're not using that language. And these are the so-called experts and the pundits and the activists that they bring on and they're not using the correct language like the sister was using in the uh, last video. But here's the one minute clip uh, from American Jail. Again, this is a CNN film by Roger Ross Williams, and we salute you, bro. How many of you know someone who's been in jail? Everybody. I've been in jail. Wait a minute. You've been in jail? Yeah. In the county jail? Lee Hart County. Yeah. Wow. Center, what is center at? Mass incarceration has become an accepted part of life for poor people and black people in America. It is so entrenched in our nation's identity that we take it for granted and accept it as the norm. Its roots are buried deep in our troubled history. When slavery was abolished in America in 1865, the United States Congress created the 13th Amendment to the Constitution, which essentially redefined the parameters of slavery. Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime, whereof 
the party shall have been duly convicted shall exist in the United States. This clause has allowed Americans to continue to enslave black people and poor people for over 150 years. Max, most important scene right there in the whole film, in my opinion, they emphasize the 13th much better than what we saw in the film, 13th. Again, the only time that the 13th Amendment was quoted was by that, that uh, abolitionist radio host um, who was a part of Abel, and so I'm appreciative of him. But they really didn't emphasize it with the graphics like, like Mr. Williams did in showing you the original document, the 13th, and then highlighting the exception clause. I toss it to you, Max. Oh, yeah. A uh, uh, big shout-out to Roger Ross Williams. Uh, he definitely did the damn thing, man. He brought it together in a very clear and concise way, and he kept it very personal with his own family. And there was things that he did in there that, you know, I've done a, a number of times. Like, when he was with his family and said, if anybody knows someone in jail or prison, raise your hand. Well, you know, in my uh, events that I attend as a spoken word artist as well as a speaker, that's one of the first things I do. Raise your hand in this room if you have a family member or yourself have been in prison or jail. And when I'm in minority communities, it's like a 90% raise, 95% hands raised. When I'm in non-minority communities, it's usually like 15 to 30% hands raised. It's clear I have who a is question. being affected by this thing. I have you a know? question on that, Max. Now, for those yes. who weren't able to see the clip, the clip is posted to New Abolitionist Radio on Facebook. Um, what, when you look at the individuals he was talking to, I don't know if that was like his family, but it might have been neighborhood friends or, or, or what have you. If you looked at them, these were these were people who looked like they were in their late 20s to possibly running the gamut to their 40s. And every last single one of them said they had been in jail at one point. Yep. And these looked like what we would call middle class people. These weren't these weren't the stereotypical that you know we that um the mainstream media certain elements like to use like you know showing a thugged out gangster pants sagging and no no these were women and men and women is the fastest growing demographic black women are fastest growing demographic who are ending up in jail in prison but all of these people look like you know they had could have graduated college were professionals or or what have you you know what i'm saying max what did your audience look like um, I usually had, well, more often than not, my audience would be uh, people of color, uh, black communities. But on a number of occasions, I've given keynote speeches as well as been a presenter at colleges and universities like the University of South Carolina. And in those cases, it's more often than not primarily not people of color. When that occasion occurs and I do the same test, it's never, never even nowhere near as high as the hands that are raised when I'm in black communities. Sometimes it's as much as a hundred percent. No, what I'm asking, Max, what I'm asking you is the type of people. Okay, were were these like street family looking people, young, real young people, or were these like parents <laughs> and fathers and yeah. mothers and uncles and 
And, you know, you probably think they had a factory job somewhere or a receptionist or a farmer. They could have been anybody. They were working class people, sometimes yeah, professionals, like when I was people, in the universities the and things like that. I've given, you know, uh, presentations before entire guilds of lawyers. You know what I mean? Like, I'm very confident about what I'm talking about, and I'm open to them being able to challenge it. But very rarely does that happen. Usually they're in agreement. Like right now, the uh, abolitionist attorneys, uh, I forget the name of their, the abolitionist attorneys association or something like that, they're an abolitionist group now promoting the same thing. What is the name of that group, Scotty? Do you remember? Uh, what? The American abolitionist? abolitionist attorneys or something? Uh, I, I can't recall. This escaping me. I know about the uh, abolitionist law center, which is in Pennsylvania, yes. and, and then yes, there's yes. Jailhouse Lawyers Association or something. Yes, abolitionist uh, attorneys, exactly. Like very much like our sister in the Kima Levy Pounds. So, yeah, Scotty, it, it usually doesn't matter whether they're poor or rich. Their hands go up equally. That is when you're right. in a community that has uh, predominantly black and brown people, right? Yes. All right. Yes. Another thing about the film that stood out for me, Scotty, is when he started talking about how it has become the norm. Like we've become, we've gotten so used to this after 154 years of it that now it's just a norm. We expect it to be this way, and if it changes, then we become aware. Like what, what, what changed? Like we expect this. And you know, there's a quote I read recently uh, from an uh, activist who was doing some data research, and she said that they have more people have been incarcerated in the past two decades of this nation's history than in all of its history combined. Just in the last two decades, more people arrested and incarcerated than all of this history's, uh, the history of this nation combined. I'm guessing they didn't count slaves as incarcerated. I think they did. But yeah, he really focused on that, and I think that's what people need to hear about how it becomes a conflict. You sound muted, Max. I'm sorry, but I think um, I think victims of slavery are included because I've heard uh, people like Mark Lamont Hill say, you know, we've had more people go in and out of prisons and jails than were the what five million? Think it was five million that were uh, reportedly enslaved victims in uh, 1865 or the closest census. So it was, only, it was only about 5 million, you know, at that time. So so uh, then you got to figure in, well, again, at the early days, it was only about 100,000 or so that was brought here. Um, maybe more, but most of the victims of slavery were bred like chattel property, like cattle. And but I, I believe the total victims in 1865 was something like five million. But if she I, if she says in the last 20, 20 years that uh, far more people have have been at least temporarily enslaved, I believe it. Yep, that's the statement that, that I mean. I it bears that out in the statistics when we look at those graphs, especially starting with the Clinton years. But certainly, you can go before and just see a gradual increase in victims. That was a quote from Asha Bandele of the Drug Policy Alliance. 
And uh, she was breaking it down in a uh, video that she put together, but that quote really stood out for me. Like, wow, just in the last 20 years, more than have ever been incarcerated in this nation. That tells you exactly what direction we're on right now here in the United States. And really the core of it all is slavery and human trafficking. It's the engine. Literally, you are like gold bars in vaults that they keep. You're a commodity making as much as a trillion dollars a year just in this country alone, just generating a trillion dollars in, in, in uh, wealth by being someone's property. It's, it's an amazing thing. And to see all these industries tied up into it, too. Uh, he went to one facility where they were having, like, a convention of companies that only provide goods and services for for, uh, for guards and people that operate and maintain and work in the jail system. So they have an entire market that only sells goods to them. And it's, it's like a, almost a billion-dollar market every year, everything from chairs to slippers to uh, oodles and noodles, and you, you name it. It's a huge industry, and that's just one industry. All of their livelihoods depend on one thing, incarceration. Without it, they wouldn't have it. It's really just that simple. Any loss of prisoners in this country is a loss to them on the bottom line. Scotty? Yeah, they have come up with a lot of creative ways to refine the system of slavery and just really maximize profits, man. You know, um, one of the things that people are also talking a lot about, right, the system and what's happening to uh, the children there, being separated from their families, uh, being threatened and uh, abused and used and even having to represent themselves in court at like four and five years old. And they're actually shocked. And I'm not surprised they're shocked. What I am surprised about is after all of this time of it happening right here in the United States, what caused people to start caring? Like, I don't understand that, Scotty. What caused people to start caring? Because this has been going on Getting the with correct the Obama information. administration. It went on with the Clinton administration, with the Bush administration. All of them were doing it. And also, it was happening here in the United States to our own children, citizens of this country, like Khalif Browder. Getting the correct information. Um, I would say they started carrying with the birth of the information age. Um, maybe not at the beginning in the 90s where, you know, everybody got connected to the Internet and people started putting stuff online um, that you maybe wouldn't come across in, in school texts and People weren't having discussions about it on television. They were calling it something else other than slavery, like the uh, recently coined term mass incarceration. So that's when I would say that more people started caring um, is because they got confronted with the information like you and I did. We got confronted. It's that simple. So with more, that's why films are valuable. Abolitionist films are valuable. Abolitionist media is valuable, whether we're talking about podcasting, digital radio, whether we're talking about terrestrial radio, if you got a show on terrestrial radio, why are you not talking about slavery? You know, I'm not saying that, that, you know, when you're talking about criminal justice issues, using the correct language, like the uh, attorney from the advice show. So that's, I think that's a simple answer to your question right off the top of my head is 
is abolitionist propaganda. Yeah, and you know, when we start focusing, though, on specific groups, and you point this out uh, often, when we start doing that, we put blinders on. You know what I mean? Like, we're just focusing on this one group. We're pretending it's not happening to the groups right behind us, or to the left of us, or to the right of us. So we really have to take the blinders off and see the bigger picture of how this all ties into modern-day slavery and human trafficking. As I've mentioned before, I was a speaker at the Revolution South Carolina uh which, you know, the Our Revolution group uh, that they have in South Carolina, which is part of the National Our Revolution group. And they uh, told me to do something specifically. What I was supposed to do for them was to put together the links of how our immigration policies are directly connected to modern-day slavery and human trafficking. And I did that in a form of putting together the uh, news headlines and discussions in chronological order from 2013 beyond. Things that you and I have witnessed along with Johanna, uh, like remember when the borders in Texas and all those facilities that the GEO group owned there were on the verge of closing because they didn't have anybody in them. Remember that? And it was really not long after that Congress had passed a, uh, a law basically guaranteeing that they would have 33,400 immigrants in these facilities at all times, every day. The first time that anybody had ever uh, put together, that Congress had ever uh, determined that a law enforcement organization was to have X amount of arrests every day. This first time it ever happened. So I traced that information back from 2013 till last year. If you don't mind, I'll read some of the headlines so people can see what I'm referring yeah, to. And before, I'll also share the entire research document on New Abolitionist Radio. Is that yeah, okay, Scotty? Yeah, before you start, though, let me say something about what you just said about Texas. And we also reported, Max, remember the rebellions? Um, had yes. these people living in County. You in a desert, and they mm-hmm. got you in a tent, and you getting bit by scorpions or whatever creepy crawlers crawl through the desert. And then the healthcare aspect of it, like earlier you was talking about, every industry has found a way to profit off of slavery. And and in this case with the immigrants and, you know, uh, people talking about abolishing ICE, you know, um, that I got to do some more research, but I'm going to go ahead and mention it first here on New Abolitionist Radio. What Donald Trump is doing is legal. I'm going to tell y'all how it's legal for him to stop doing what past administrations were doing where at least you had to release these people in under 30 days, okay? These are people seeking asylum. That's the majority of the people. I know the right wing likes to play up that, oh, these is just people who's coming to suck off the welfare system and all this and that, and you would have to steal somebody's ID to do that. You know what I'm saying? Uh, identity theft, and that's just not the case. Um, a lot of misinformation uh, being put out there to demonize human beings so that you wouldn't care that they, you know, being locked up like that. But but how is it legal for Donald Trump to be doing what he's doing? He's invoking national security because I did another video and I was talking about white supremacist terrorists and, and how the Uh, Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871 had been repealed, which was used to crush, you know, the oldest terrorist organization here in the United States. Um, 
and but that was uh, declared unconstitutional by Congress. But the same elements that was, I noticed, the same elements in the KKK Act used to crush white supremacist terrorists preying on and terrorizing uh, recently, you know, emancipated victims of slavery is in the Patriot Act. It's in the Patriot Act. And it that's how ICE was created, by the Patriot Act. And if he's invoking national security, which I'm hearing he's done that with some uh, trade stuff, which people have said that's not correct to, you know, classify these tariffs for on steel and aluminum, saying it's a national security issue. That's that's not a national security issue. That's a trade issue. But he's invoking he's invoking the Patriot Act, which allows for the indefinite detention. And before it started happening to these refugees, it happened to Americans. Americans who were non-white and Americans who were Muslim and Americans who was rebelling against uh, uh, the, the global system of slavery and human trafficking, but with you looking at the United States as the birth or the controlling state of it all. And, and so he's invoking the Patriot Act. So... What's to stop him from invoking the Patriot Act and coming after abolitionists or coming after black nationalists or coming after radical leftists, Antifa or what? You know what I'm saying? Because they're like the black identity extremists, black identity extremists, like they tried to hem the brother up in Texas on. So. So, I, man, we have documented so much on, on new abolitionist radio max and you be bringing back. You know, some just some some memories, man, that again, it's not enough people really stressing what we're dealing with in that slavery. I spent some time with his family members, the brother from Texas, while I was out in Atlanta, and we were having a discussion on modern slavery as well as um, political prisoners. Uh, and they had, they really did their research, and they're abolitionists as well. Hey, Max, uh, before you know. go into your headlines, we're going to take our break so you don't be interrupted and what have you. Okay, so great. let's go ahead that sounds great. and take our break. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio right here on the Black Talk Radio Network. We are live on the 4th of July, and we'll be right back after these messages. scheduling, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. You're muffled, Max. We can't hear you. Uh, sorry, Scotty. Can you hear me now? Yes. Thanks and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. What I want to do at this time right now is uh, share with you some of my research that I put together for the event that was uh, for the Our Revolution South Carolina, the Movement School for the Revolutionaries. And uh, 
It says, Immigration Enforcement Policy, Prison Industrial Complex. This discussion exposes the complexities of the private prison industry in relation to the commodification of undocumented immigrants. Immigrants have, have become corporate interests, affect state and federal policies in order to engender mass incarceration. And that was their description. So here's what I did. As I said, I put together these headlines and articles in chronological order because I have reported on them over these times. So we'll start with number one. Little-known immigration mandate keeps detention beds full. This was November 19, 2013 on NPR. It says, imagine your city council telling the police department how many people they had to keep in jail each night. That's effectively what Congress has told the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement with a policy known as the detention bed mandate. The mandate calls for filling 34,000 beds in some 250 facilities across the country per day with immigrant detainees. The detention bed mandate, which began in 2009, is just part of the massive increase in enforcement-only immigration policies over the last two decades. The last time Congress passed a broad immigration law dealing with something other than enforcement, such as overhauling visa or work, guest work policies, was in 1986. Number two, in 2014, from Business Insider, immigrants are being held in private Texas prisons and are subject to shocking abuse. And this starts to introduce you to the Wallacey, uh, facility, Wallacey facility there in Texas. Between 2009 and 2014, the ACLU visited all five Texas prisons, interviewed hundreds of prisoners and their families, and reviewed contracts, medical records, and other documents held by the Bureau of Prisons. The report described BOP policies that incentivize overcrowding, indiscriminate use of solitary confinement, and extra cost-cutting measures that have led to both the death of prisoners and an unusually high number of riots among low-security inmates. One of the riots, by uh, chance, that they're talking about is what we have reported here on New Abolitionist Radio and what Scotty just mentioned. Willisy, located in Raymondville, an impoverished and remote South Texas town about 40 miles from the border, had long gone up in a hurry. The results of a $65 million no-bid contract tainted by charges of corruption among county officials run by Utah-based Management and Training Corp., the 2,000-bed detention center came to be known as RITMO, a play on Gitmo, the nickname for Guantanamo Bay. Others called it Tent City for the jail's unusual architecture, 10 tents consisting of a Kevlar-like material stretched over steel frames. Each tent houses 200 men in bunk beds spaced three feet apart. Man, it sounds like an outdoor slave ship. Before long, reports of awful conditions inside began leaking out beaten by guards, hundreds of sexual assault allegations, prisoners being denied silverware, maggots in the food, a dangerous lack of medical care. Detainees describe the situation as homeless. I'm not going to read the rest of that. I'm going to go to the next one, which is number three. If you remember this one, Scotty, in July 8th of 2014, President Obama asked for $3.7 billion to aid the border crisis. This is from the New York Times. Washington, President Obama urges Congress on Tuesday to quickly provide almost $4 billion to confront a surge of young immigrants from Central America crossing the border into Texas, calling it an urgent humanitarian situation. <clears throat> As 
The president said he needed the money to set up new detention facilities, conduct more aerial surveillance, and hire immigration judges and border patrol agents to respond to the flood of 52,000 children. 52,000 children. The sudden mass migration has overwhelmed local resources and touched off protests from residents angry about the impact on the local economy. In a letter to congressional leaders, Mr. Obama urged them to act expeditiously on his request. The president's funding request is certainly revived legislation passed that prompted Mr. Obama to promise sweeping executive actions to get around Republican opposition to a bill that would provide a path to citizenship for 11 million immigrants in the country illegally. That's number three. I want to stop there and make a comment on that. Yeah, I got a Thank comment, for... too. Sure, Scotty. Right, go ahead and make yours, man. Okay, my comment is, um, man, they, they up here shooting fireworks, and I lost my train of thought, man. Um, <laughs> well, man, um, okay, yeah, I know what I was about to say. Uh, so that that's that's Obama uh, treating, calling uh, what you about to do, which was slavery, of children. Okay, I got my train of thought back. Children, fifty-two thousand children, children, children without adults with them. What would make a parent send their child by themselves and put them, often putting them in the hands of human traffickers and trusting that they're gonna deliver that child? safely to the United States to possible relatives here or, or whoever would take them in. Why would they risk that? You got to be facing an extreme amount of violence. And let's not forget the same administration, the ATF had the gun walking scandal where they let thousands of assault styled rifles and other weapons go across the border in these straw men, this was an ATF operation, and put, and and that led to mass violence. I mean, y'all talk about Chicago. Chicago ain't nothing compared to the to the levels of deaths that was occurring in just Mexico. That's not even including the other places the United States has destabilized. And in the case of the children, they are automatically no i was hearing that 80 plus percent might have been 85 percent or more when they apply and they're applying for asylum political asylum what gives them the right or or a justification to ask for political asylum in the united states because the united states government gives them that because they don't want it to come out the stuff like the gun walking scheme that they was doing, their deals like the DEA had with the Sinaloa cartel, allowing them to smuggle drugs and just whole facilitating the whole thing. So, so that's very Im important to note. That was one in 2013, 52,000, you said, Max, children, unaccompanied children. children. Unaccompanied children. Now, why would we have 52,000 unaccompanied children on our borders? My sources have told me that there was a rumor basically sent out because of Obama's uh, rhetoric about a path to citizenship that if you sent your children to the United States, they would spend a little bit of time in one of these detention facilities, and then they would be able to get asylum and citizenship. This is a rumor that was going out, and 52,000 children showed up on our door, and every single one of them made $55,000 a head for the prison enslavers known as the GEO Group, 
and CCA, a.k.a. Core Civic. They are at the root of every one of these issues. That $3.7 billion that Obama declared we needed immediately for all these children went to the GEO group. Yes, well, I do remember was, a story, Max, got, probably that same show where, wasn't it a story reported where a private prison company got busted with a van full of of uh, uh, refugees? Yes. Okay. Yes, they were actually going over into Mexico, picking up refugees and bringing them back to fill the prison cells. Like, literally, that's what one of these private prisons was doing. Well, I'll see if I can get that one for you later, Scotty. But unless you have something else to go on to, I'll go to number four. Go to number four, Max. And number by the four. way, Max, do we want to open up the yes. phone lines? Because um, we've been on, well, dialogue is two people. But if you have any okay. questions or comments or you remember any of this reporting on New Abolitionist Radio for our longtime listeners, give us a call at 704 704- 802-5056-704-802-5056. Hit star star to unmute yourself and please watch your background noise. So within a few months of each one happening, the last one was July 8, 2014. We move on to 2015 from NPR.org. Max, before you hit the next story, I'm sorry to interrupt you, um, but uh, Otis wants to chime in. Okay. Oldest. Good evening, gentlemen. How you doing on this 4th of July? Uh, I just wanted to tell you firsthand, I actually was in Tucson, Arizona in 2012 and 2013 getting cataract surgery. So I used to, VA is right up from South Dallas, which is primarily Hispanic. So I walked eight or nine blocks rather than catch the bus in front of the VA and actually encountered and talked to Spanish people that had flyers that when I tried to do the research back then ended up being connected to a U.S. expatriate that was living in Guatemala and uh, Honduras and and when all of this surge started they were actually going around in some of these countries telling the people that you needed to have your children come and apply for asylum before they closed the borders. That was the primary impetus. I actually yep. talked about it in one of my first call-ins to your show because that's when I really started listening to y'all religiously. And I was first communicating from Tucson. And mm. they literally were producing the people at the border to put stress on the Obama administration. And that's when I tried to say on one of the earlier uh, call-ins that he capitulated by actually doing the no-bid contracts under uh, the Patriot Act because they, he was the first. That's why I, yeah. I keep debating people now, and they don't want to believe it, but I keep going back to my Facebook timeline and posting. I've been doing it religiously for the last month or so, saying you cannot blame all of this on Trump. Trump has ratcheted it up on how he processes them, but I literally saw them opening closed schools in Tucson area, Vail, uh, Arizona, and several other small cities where they had closed down schools. They literally opened up those public schools and some foreclosed hotels to house these people. And they were all done with no big contracts. And some of them went to Core Civic 
And that's when I, the, I think I first called in and said something to you about Harry Reid, them out of Nevada, and another congressman out of Utah that actually had prison, private prisons stop and because and, they knew that the surge was coming. So, yeah. uh, I, so I, that's one of the reasons I keep saying people don't want to realize this is about money and, uh, and making sure that the system grows. They're not interested in wrapping it back. Remember when you first reported about Obama toward the end of his second term was talking about he was going to cancel all contracts with private prisons? That was nothing but a publicity ploy, and I actually said it at the time. He's trying to make it look good for election time, but he was capitulated to the GOP when he did that. He gave away billions and actually almost doubled the size of hey, ICE Otis, in the process. Otis, if yeah, I remember correctly. Yeah, that was a successful effort at $3.7 billion in profit. So now they're looking to double or triple that with this new effort. And Otis, I rem- if I remember correctly, not a single contract because Sally Yates um, made the announcement uh, at the Justice Department and she's supposed to be part of the resistance after, you know, she left. But they never canceled, canceled any contracts. And I'm sorry if y'all hear the sounds of cognitive dissonance exploding in the background. Um, but, hey, we got that's why we on this mic. Oh, I've got it going on in, in my background, too. I hope it's not coming across. But I'll mute myself. I may chime back in later. But I, I'm glad to see y'all to put it out here. I tried to invite... Uh, almost a dozen people to this uh, For For You Live uh, process because it's on a, a, a fitting day for most of them to wake up and see what's really going on. And the other thing is, Scotty Reed says it all the time, it's all propaganda. I know it irks me to no end that people are spinning this to claim Trump, 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 when the reality is this system is set up for both parties to perpetuate harm to the average citizen. Exactly, exactly. Well, um, that leads me to number four now. And number four says the closure of private prisons forces Texas County to plug the financial gap. This shows you really how tied into these prison systems these counties are, how their livelihood literally depends on on them. The Willisee County Correctional Center is empty now. The tall security fences and dome-like housing units set out on the coastal prairie have no one inside them. One morning late last month, the prisoners rioted. They set fires and tore the place up. Guards put down the uprising in about five hours, but the destruction was so severe that the sprawling detention compound has been shut down. All 28 inmates were transferred. Now, I want to pause what I wrote there from this clip and point out that what they're talking about is they had a facility built to hold 600 people that had 2,800 people in it instead, and they were living outside these tents and being subject to animal bites and insects and brutality and everything you can imagine, and forced to labor for free every single day right there in that tent city. Judges ordered them to shut that crap down, not because the prisoners rioted, but because of this condition that they had human beings in. Now, to continue it, it says, Willisee County is now facing the question, what does it do now that its biggest moneymaker is out of business? Worst scenario, we'll lose about $2.3 million annually, which is about 23% of our income, says Betty Guerra, 
Wersey County Commission. This agricultural county in the Rio Grande Grande Valley is one of the poorest in the nation. The main street of Raymondville, the county seat, is lined with Tex-Mex cafes, payday loans, offices, and Joe Alexander's jewelry store. Around the state, we have seen several communities that have had their private prisons fail, and they're left holding the bag when it comes to the debt that they floated. Bob LeBow, who never expect, we never expected something like this, to this catastrophe to happen all at one time. Alexander was mayor of Raymondville twice before, and he's running again. He says the prison's water and sewer bill amount to $50,000 a month, a big boost to the city. Once insurance pays for the expensive repairs to the prison, the county needs to fill those beds again. It's a business, he says. And we're going to take all the advantage we can to bring in more business if possible. That means more inmates. Uh, I'll go on now to number five, unless anybody has any comments about number four. All right. In 2015, under grassrootsleadership.org, from Bethany Carson and Elena Diaz, payoff. How Congress ensured private prison profit with an immigration detention quota. Executive summary. In 2009, in the midst of a multi-year decline in the undocumented immigration population. Remember I just said that, right? In 2009, in the midst of a multi-year decline in the undocumented immigration population, Senator Robert Byrd, then chairman of the Appropriations Subcommittee on Homeland Security, inserted the following language regarding immigration and customs enforcement, ICE, detention budget into the Department of Homeland Security Appropriation Act of 2010. Quote, funding made available under this heading shall maintain a level of not less than 34,400 detention beds. This directive established what would become a, a controversial policy interpreted by ICE as a mandate to contract for and fill 33,400, increased to 34,000 in 2013, detention beds on a daily basis. The directive would come to be known as the Immigration Detention Quota, or bed mandate. The Immigration Detention Quota is unprecedented. No other law enforcement agency operates under a detention quota mandated by Congress. You'll also hear that phrase, bed mandate, when they talk about private prisons in states like Arizona, which has at least three private prisons that have a guaranteed 100% occupancy rate for 25 full years. Guaranteed. They have a lot of key findings, and almost all of it points to the GEO Group and the CCA. It's very lengthy, and you should check it out. Number six, the flood of immigrants, families, that border revised dormant detention program. This was just a few months later in July of, uh, 25th of 2015 from NBC News. Now remember, we go from there's nobody coming in to all of a sudden, here they come. A flood of families crossing the southwestern U.S. border illegally is prompting the Obama administration to revive a much-criticized detention program that previously led to children and their parents being held for extended periods of time in harsh prison-like conditions. Figures released last week by Custom and Border Protection show more than 55,000 family units, at least one adult relative traveling with one or more children, were apprehended crossing the border in fiscal 2014. That figure is an increase of nearly 
500% from the previous year endorsed the 106% spike in unaccompanied children to more than 57,000. And that has received so much attention in recent months. Again, there's more in there. That was number six. 2016, we're going through the next year. Number seven, Correction Corps and the GEO Group prison stock surge on the Trump win. Y'all remember that? Trump is supposed to be good for business. And one of those businesses is the prison industry, says NBC.com. Shares in the two largest private prison stocks jumped sharply the month of Donald J. Trump was elected president. The Corrections Corporation of America, a.k.a. Core Civic, surged by 60% before falling back to 34% jump, and Geo Group Incorporated was up by 20%. Shares in private prison companies jumped the morning of Trump's win. And they go in more detail and talk about how the Geo Group uh, actually gave $250,000 to the Trump campaign about a week before the uh, actual election. Illegal. Anyway, number eight, thanks to President Donald Trump, America's private prisons appear to be entering a golden age. That's CNN Money, February 24, 2017. Number nine, defunct Kent City prison to reopen two years after prison riot. Now, remember we talked about Willisie County? They did what they said they were going to do. They filled those beds. And number 10, White House greenlights a new immigration detention center in Texas. That's uh, April 18th of 2017. It was like clockwork, all working with the Florida-based GEO group to put this together as a money-making scheme masterminded by the slave catcher George C. Zoli, who is the CEO and chairman of uh, the Geo Group. Number 11, private prison company Geo Group gave generously to Trump, and now it has a lucrative contract. That was in May of 2017 from, 2000, from Newsweek. And then number 12, and I'm going to stop here and leave the rest for you to read on New Abolitionist Radio, is from the L.A. Times in 2017, May. Thousands of immigrants, detainees, sue private prison firm over forced labor, calling it slavery. And, Scotty, you and I reported on that particular case where they were literally working these people as slaves, and they sued them, and I believe they won the case. Scotty? Could you repeat that last part about somebody suing Oh man, we lost Max. Um, let me see if I can uh, dial him up again. What you're hearing, if you're hearing shooting in around your house and in the background and all of that, just look at that as um, a sign of cognitive dissonance. Look up that definition of that word. That's when you're holding beliefs that are contradictory to one another. You're celebrating freedom in the country with the most prison slaves on, on, the, on the plantation. Not just citizens, but just human beings. Does it matter? Does citizenship matter? You know, it do matter in some, in legal terms, in what's being done to, you know, uh, 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 victims of slavery uh, born in America with American citizenship. But it's happening to refugees as well. It's, it, it's, it's a worldwide international trade. Do we have you back, Max? Yes, I'm back, Scotty. Okay, Otis wanted to share again. Go ahead, Otis. Mike is yours. 
Yeah, I, I just want to put in, because Max hit on the part where I was talking about Core Civic when he said CCA. That's that's one of the other things I can remember calling in on, so I pulled it up from a bookmark. The Tennessean uh, reported on uh, CCA, Corrections Corporation of America, changing over to Core Civic. That switchover came right at the end of 2016, and the reason that they changed their name was over legal protections because they were operating eight different facilities in Tennessee alone, and they lost a couple of lawsuits. So in response to the lawsuit is when the Department are the, are of Justice human right abuses lawsuits made the, the public statement about discontinuing their contract. Then when they switched over to Core Civic, they resolved their supposed problems with, with the uh, lawsuits and continued their contracts. That's why I said Obama did nothing but a publicity stunt because the money never stopped flowing and, and the Tennessean ran articles for a long time talking about the corruption in, the, in those eight facilities. And, and that was right after CCA had spent a quarter million dollars to make the largest facility that they had in Tennessee. That's why I keep saying Americans don't wanna wake up to the truth. And I wanna put another pitch in. They keep saying that the mainstream media won't tell the truth, but I'm getting upset because when platforms like this put the truth out, people don't want to believe it. What did you say? Cognitive dissonance. They don't want to believe that they've been duped, no matter how many facts you give them. Um, yeah, I want to give a quick shout out to Kanye West. I know that may sound odd, but around this same time, because we're basically going in a time machine on New Abolitionist Radio again, the first broadcast ever on uh, uh, Mass Cognitive Dissonance Day is what we ought to start calling it. You know what I'm saying? But shout out to Kanye West because during this time, it was during the Obama administration when he came out with New Slave. And uh, when we hit the break, I'll try to play a little bit of that. We need that type of Kanye back. And it just reminds me, you know, uh, even Kadir Latif, another rapper who hasn't had the success of a Kanye West, but mentioned slavery in, in, in hip hop, you know. And then there's other underground artists, you know, independent artists online uh, who have put out tracks, you know, influenced by, you know, Black Talk Radio Network. So shout out to Kanye West. We need that Kanye back to, in his music, tell the people that, you know, we're dealing with slavery. Like he said, when Otis said CCA, that just triggered triggered it, you know, uh, in my mind. But uh, Max, we got about two minutes to break. Okay, awesome. Uh, there is at least one story I want to cover before we get into our final uh, segments. And there is just a few seconds of a video that I want to play, Scotty. I guess we could do that right now. Uh, we'll shut it off after a few seconds. But let me lead up into an intro of it. I have had personal discussions with Nina Turner on at least uh, two occasions. I've had people who consider me their mentor have discussions with Nina Turner on occasion, like Hannah X. Abdur uh, Rahim, for instance, when she addressed Nina Turner and Sean King about the abolitionist movement and the 13th Amendment. And I was on an interview once with uh, my sister where uh, we talked directly about abolition and slavery. And to hear her say what you're going to hear on this video, 
just tells me that the message that we've been putting out there is out there. They know all about it. So now they're trying to take it, convert it, and use it for their own purposes. And it's only about five or six seconds you need to play, Scotty, if you don't mind. Okay. Um, I got it queued up. Give me just a second. I'm trying to deal with the audio. Been having technical issues again. Apologies. We started late. But, that uh, article, I mean, that, that research about, that I read oh my God, was uh, the, for the our revolution, which is Nina uh, Turner is the head of that, as far as I know. The headline. And, and that just triggers something else in my mind. Uh, 2016 to bop the uh what was it to abolish the private prisons the 2016 justice is not for sale act something like that we would yes, the be... 2015 justice is not for sale act yeah yeah and obama invested no political clout in the pushing that bill and getting it signed before he got out of office we wouldn't even be talking about the geo group or cca today but this is uh, this headline kind of offends me from Cuomo primetime um, CNN news anchor who last week or the week before I heard call a white supremacist a brother on air. I'm serious. So, but the name of this is we need to be about abolishing the Trump administration at the ballot ballot box starting this year. Let me get you on record. Do you like that play by the Democrats? Abolish ICE? Part. I know why people are saying abolish ICE, but my concern is with this president, he will just uh, replace that function with something else. We need to be about abolishing the Trump administration at the ballot box starting this year with the midterm elections into next year and into 2020. But are so you that worried that you're bailing him out? You've got him in a bad place on immigration. He screwed up. He did something that is inhumane and indecent, and people are calling him out for it of all kinds of political stripes, except for one concentrated aspect of his base. Then, not since Roseanne Barr. That's enough. You heard You're you're muted, Max. You're muted again. Can you hear me now? Still muted. You know what? Sound like you're talking to a pillow. Let's take our break, and when okay, we come back, we I'll, I'll have my comment. Can, You're can, listening to New Abolitionist Radio on the Black Talk Radio Network on the 4th of July. We'll be right back. Radio since 2008, providing new black media for the masses. Please welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Here at the Black Talk Radio Network. You just heard a clip a little while ago as Scotty Reed pointed out from uh, CNN. 
water was only served to the fairest skin. Doing clothes, you would have thought I had help, but they wasn't satisfied unless I picked the cotton myself. You see, it's broken, a racism that's that don't touch anything in the stove. And it's written, a racism that's that come in, please, my mom. What you want? A Bentley, fur coat, a diamond chain? All you blacks want all the same thing. You still only be It's leaders and it's followers, but I'd rather be a prick than a swallower. You see, it's leaders and it's followers, but I'd rather be a prick than a swallower. I see the blood on the lead. I see the blood on the lead. I see the blood on the lead. I know that we the new slave. I see the blood on the lead. They don't hate at me. Want me to stay at ease. I'm king with your corporation. Young can't control me. I know that we the new slave. I know that we the new slave. I'm about to wild the hell out. I'm going Bobby Boucher. I know that nothing ain't free. You mean with Muslim ain't me. Y'all throwing contracts at me. You know that don't read. Throw up some Maybach keys. out the country so you can't see where I stay. So go and grab the report so I can smash his recorder. They try to confuse it with some BS like the New World Order. Meanwhile, the DEA teamed up with the CCA. They try to lock people up. They try to make new slaves. See, that's that probably on prison. Get your peace today. They probably all in the Hamptons bragging about what they made. Fuck the man, your Hampton house. I take your Hampton spouse. Came on a Hampton blouse and in a Hampton mouth. Y'all about to turn it I'm about to tear it down. I'm about to air it out. Now what the hell they gonna say now? Kanye West, new slaves. Kanye West, new slaves. That was live on Saturday Night Live on uh, May, whatever the date was, 2013. CCA which they changed their name to Core Civic probably shortly after that. But again, he talked about, he. what did he call it? Slavery, didn't he? M- made the connections. You I'm there? just saying, you know what I mean? They're taking the idea of abolition and applying it to everything but slavery. So the last story, Scotty, I, I wanted to get out before our final segments is one that was submitted to us by Otis. Uh, and it's kind of shocked the hell out of me. I should have known it, but... They even make money on when they pay money. <laughs> Let me just read this story in the headlines for you so y'all understand what I mean. All right, remember, we still got, what, three more segments? Two more? Yeah. Two more. Uh, so the headlines come from, it comes from Milwaukee newspapers and it says, banks earn millions from bonds issued to settle MPD brutality cases, a new report finds. And it says, when many cities, including Milwaukee, exceed their budget for settlements and judgments related to police misconduct, they utilize taxpayer-funded bonds with higher interest rates to cover the cost of lawsuits. This creates 
an avenue for banks and investors to profit from police brutality, according to a report released Tuesday by the Action Center on Race and the Economy, ACRE. The release of the report comes the same day a civil rights lawsuit on behalf of Milwaukee Bucks player Sterling Brown is expected to be filed in federal court. Brown was thrown to the ground and tased while being arrested for a parking violation on Milwaukee's south side in January. Now, here's some key issues. According to the Acre analysis, banks and investors have profited to the tune of $3.7 million. The amount of interest and service costs collected on $26 million in police brutality bonds issued between 2008 and 2017 that brought the total cost to taxpayers to $29.8 million. Acre is a national racial justice and Wall Street accountability campaign based in Chicago. The police brutality bonds are actual municipal bonds issued by a local government in which banks serve as underwriters. Banks then facilitate bond sales to the buyers, the report states. Uh, The study examined the increasing cost of police brutality in 12 counties and cities, including Milwaukee. Each took out millions in bonds to cover settlements, with Chicago borrowing $709 million and paying $1 billion in interest between 2017 or 2010 and 2017. The report found that rather than serving as a deterrent for abusive, abusive policing, high settlement payouts appear to be an acceptable cost of business of policing for cities and counties across the country. Furthermore, the report states violent police officers and their departments are shielded financially from lawsuits. Settlements can function as hush money, and there is a lack of transparency and disclosure about the practice of bonding to cover police brutality settlements. I won't read the rest of it, Scotty, but they go through a lot of numbers, and the entire report is available. Apparently, the banks are making money on police brutality. Yeah, I saw that earlier when Otis posted it in btrcommunity.com. And I think my comment was something about refinement. You know, they have refined slavery so much. And I mean, it has to be refined to a point that we got all this cognitive dissonance exploding on July the 4th. I mean, um, so I saw the story no different than the banks. I think I identified or made a meme or something of the six banks that's underwriting the day-to-day operations of private prisons, and all you had to do is withdraw your money. But since those banks are still operating, um, you know, that speaks for itself. So we do have the power to end stuff, even nonviolently. But it's about having a budget to get that, that message out to the masses that counter-propaganda, that freedom propaganda, that abolitionist propaganda. But, uh, yeah, Max, you want to tee up our next segments? Which one do you want me to take? Uh, Scotty, I just want to point out that the bank, one of the banks involved in this uh, making money off police brutality was, of course, uh, the, uh, the hell is the name of it? We always talking about it. Just went out of my head just that quick. Um, since 1865, they've been Wells a, Fargo. Uh, in, Wells in, uh, Fargo. Wells Fargo. Wells Fargo. Wells Fargo. Eighteen fifty-five, I think. Yes, Wells Fargo was one of the banks that is uh, selling off these uh, police brutality bonds. 
man, I can't wait to do a little bit more research so I can actually see. This is really called a police brutality bond that you can purchase to make money. That's amazing. So what I want to do, Scotty, is uh, I want to listen to What to the Slave is the Fourth of July by uh, Frederick Douglass and read by James Earl Jones. And it came from NPR uh, discussion and reading that they had there. I'll put it in the chat room for you, Scotty, so you have it right there. And that will be us, uh, our abolitionists in profile today. We have done Frederick Douglass about a half a dozen times. We love Frederick Douglass here. This is Democracy Now! Instead of telling you about him, we're going to let him speak for himself. Through oh, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. In this holiday special, we begin with the words of Frederick Douglass. Born into slavery around 1818, Douglass became a key leader of the abolitionist movement. On July 5, 1852, in Rochester, New York, he gave one of his most famous speeches, the meaning of July 4th for the Negro. He was addressing the Rochester Ladies Anti-Slavery Society. This is James Earl Jones reading the historic address during a performance of Howard Zinn's Voices of a People's History of the United States. He was introduced by Howard Zinn. Frederick Douglass, once a slave, became a brilliant and powerful leader of the anti-slavery movement. In 1852, he was asked to speak in celebration of the 4th of July. Fellow citizens, pardon me and allow me to ask, why am I called upon to speak here today? What have I or those I represent to do with your national independence? Are the great principles of political freedom and of natural justice embodied in that declaration of independence extended to us, and am I therefore called upon to bring our humble offering to the national altar and to confess their benefits and express devout gratitude for the blessings resulting from your independence to us. I am not included within the pale of this glorious anniversary. Your high independence only reveals the immeasurable distance between us, the blessings in which you this day rejoice are not enjoyed in common. The rich inheritance of justice, liberty, prosperity, and independence bequeathed by your fathers is shared by you, not by me. The sunlight that brought life and healing to you has brought stripes and death to me. This 4th of July is yours, not mine. You may rejoice, I must mourn. To drag a man in fetters into the grand illuminated temple of liberty and call upon him to join you in joyous anthems were inhuman mockery and sacrilegious irony. Do you mean, citizens, to mock me by asking me to speak today? What to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer, a day that reveals to him more than all other days of the year the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is a constant victim, 
To him, your celebration is a sham. Your boasted liberty, an unholy license. Your national greatness, swelling vanity. Your sounds of rejoicing are empty and heartless. Your denunciation of tyrants, brass-fronted impudence. Your shouts of liberty and equality, hollow mockery. Your prayers and hymns, your sermons and thanksgivings, with all your religious parade and solemnity, are to him mere bombast, fraud, deception, impiety, and hypocrisy. A thin veil to cover up crimes that would, it, that would disgrace a nation of savages. There's not a nation of the earth guilty of practices more shocking and bloody than are the people of these United States at this very hour. At a time like this, scorching irony, not convincing argument, is needed. Oh, had I the ability and could reach the nation's ear, I would today pour forth a stream, a fiery stream of biting ridicule, blasting reproach, withering sarcasm, and stern rebuke. For it is not light that is needed, but fire. It is not the gentle shower, but thunder. We need the storm, the whirlwind, the earthquake. The feeling of the nation must be quickened. The conscience of the nation must be roused. The propriety of the nation must be startled. The hypocrisy of the nation must be exposed and the crimes against God and man must be proclaimed and denounced. Frederick Douglass, what to the slave is the 4th of July. And Max, I can just picture that, that hall. Huh? I can just picture that hall, the people who invited him, the organizers, and what have you. Oh, we're gonna we gonna bring this Negro up in our moderate, you know, white liberal as Dr. King called him, you know, this greatest stumbling block to to freedom of the black man. But they thought they was gonna showcase old Frederick, didn't they? And man, that's like a literary smackdown of the people that he probably got paid to to, to tell them people about themselves. So Wow. I'm, I'm laughing because I've done that myself a few times. They brought me in thinking I was going to say one thing and I turn around and say something else. Wow. <laughs> Love it. No doubt, man. Well, uh, Scotty, we got one more segment left and then our final comments. So our last segment would be our rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad. And this one is just two days old, July 2nd, 2018, Baltimore. A Maryland man has been exonerated of murder and set free after spending 30 years in prison. News outlet reports 50-year-old Jerome Johnson was released Monday. He had been convicted of participating in the July 1988 shooting of a man at a Baltimore liquor store. The case was reviewed by defense attorney Nancy Foster, the Baltimore State's Attorney's Office, and the nonprofit Mid-Atlantic Innocence Project. The review uncovered issues, including Maryland's failure to disclose evidence and police not confirming a witness's identification of Johnson. The state attorney's office asked the judge Monday to vacate the charge. City State's attorney, Marilyn Mosby, apologized to Johnson on behalf of 
the justice system following his release. Johnson is at least the third man to be exonerated during Mosby's nearly three years in office. And we here at New Abolitionist Radio salute you and say welcome to freedom, Brother Johnson. Welcome to freedom and a quick message to the abolitionists out there. Uh, Again, going back to early in the program, got to stress the importance of self-reliance and that that includes self-governance. There's no reason that people should not be able to organize, build coalitions, and control the politics of their community. Their politics is what legislates law, writes codes. You know, you can decide if you're going to give sanctuary to refugees or if you're going to declare that uh, this is a no drug arrest free, you know, zone or what have you. So I don't want to go off on that that tangent, but it's important that we support abolitionist DA. What What's the sister name from, I think it was San Francisco, she ran for DA, Jones for DA. Jones Wright. Gen- Jones Wright. Genevieve Jones Wright. Yes. Yes. And, um, you know, I still support her on Twitter. I retweet her stuff. She's staying active. But the GEO group, again, how many times has their name been mentioned tonight? gave a whole bunch of money to the Republican candidate, um, which gives you an advantage, you know, in campaign ads, what you can spend on social media. And you do have, unfortunately, politics are is ruled by money. Producing your ability to produce propaganda is a big part of a political campaign. And so she lost. But I'm going to keep encouraging her to run again. But we need to, to again, question politicians, and if abolition isn't on the plate, then we got to ask them, well, are you going to make some room on that plate for some slavery abolitionists? Because, you know, um, you're going to have to do that if you want our coalition's backing. So I just want to stress the importance of what Miss Mosby uh, did there, regardless of I know people's opinions of her is varied, but uh, when when you at least try to practice justice, you got to give these people support. Because they're up against a system that has been existing for over 400 years, as they say, on this continent, in this nation's history. So, Max, um, those would be my final comments, actually. Okay, Scotty. Um, What I want to do next week, since we've been talking a lot about the GEO Group, is I've done my research on them, too, and I've written intensively on them. And I want to expose the GEO Group. I've studied them from their birth uh, through their founder, George Wackenhut, all the way up to their movements today. And I've got a lot of information to share. So I'll bring that to you next week. What I want to do while I'm sitting here in South Carolina with fireworks, you might even hear, blowing up all around me, celebrating the 4th of July and the freedom of America, I have to repeat the words of Frederick Douglass twice. First saying what you just heard him say, that while you rejoice, I must mourn. And secondly, an excerpt from a speech. No fact is more obvious than the fact that there is a perpetual tendency of power to encroach upon weakness and of the crafty to take advantage of the simple. This is as natural as for smoke to ascend or water to run down. The love of power is one of the strongest rates in the Anglo-Saxon race. This love of power common to the white race has been nursed 
and strengthened at the South by slavery, accustomed during 200 years to the unlimited possession and exercise of irresponsible power. The love of it has become stronger by habit. To assume that this feeling of pride and power has died out and disappeared from the South is to assume a miracle. Any man who tells you that it has died out or has ceased to be exercised and made effective tells you that which is untrue and in the nature of things could not be true. Not only is the love of power there, but a talent for its exercise has been fully developed. This talent makes the old master class of the South not only the masters of the Negro, but the masters of Congress, and if not checked, will make them the masters of this nation. I denounced this so-called emancipation as a stupendous fraud by Frederick Douglass, 1888. Remember, abolition is a reason for revolution, so we can finally know peace. Peace, Scotty. Peace. Rise up, 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 rise up. Showtime. Just lift your eyes up. Let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times, if it's time, rise up, rise up. When death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the feast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up. When famine claims millions, when justice gives blind eyes to billions, when the Lord's anger is no longer fear. If his protection is gone and your enemies are near If you've seen the seas spill over And the mountains shake, break, and fall If the moon ever turns blood red And you can't see the sun at all Rise up, 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 rise up,